Welcome to the Josh Bolton Show, where we dive into interesting and inspiring conversations. And now, your host, Josh Bolton. Before we get started, tell me about yourself, what you do, and a little bit about your books. Well, I am a high school English teacher. Okay. And uh, I've been teaching for about 25 years. Okay. And my first three books were nonfiction, true crime books. Okay. And mainly about having to do with the criminal justice system. And they were really difficult, emotional books for me to write. The first one was actually about my husband's experience going through the prison system. Okay. And um, then my second book was about the, the stigma that the families of inmates go through in mm-hmm. society called guilty hearts because society like really frowns upon families that have incarcerated loved ones yeah, they and, do. and the families have to carry the same guilt that their loved ones do, whether it's a husband, a boyfriend, a, a son, whoever it is, father that's in prison, people just kind of devalue you immediately if you have somebody in your family that's incarcerated. Mm-hmm. So like, I don't go around and say, like there are people I know who don't know I'm married to an inmate because I don't go around saying, hi, I'm Caroline and I'm married to an inmate. Mm-hmm. That's not a good, yeah. you know, it's not a good uh, like cocktail introduction. Yeah, exactly. Especially as a teacher, it, it can, it can go bad pretty quick that way. Yeah. It gets political and they're like, Oh my God, yeah, out. she's going to do something. Yeah. Well, I actually was teaching one place where they're like, Oh my God he she's got access to the school and he could rob the concession stand yeah my husband is in prison for robbing 12 banks with notes i have a feeling that concession stands are a little below his pay grade if he had any inclination to commit more crime you know what i mean Mm -hmm. that's just really stupid to say that he could rob the concession stand plus they obviously don't know how concession stands work because the money is not kept there in the concession stand. You turn it into the, the school immediately after the game. So right. I take Snickers bars if that's what they're worried about. But that's just ridiculous. And so then my third book was called Inside the Death Fences, Memoir of a Whistleblower, because I was a prison employee. I taught in a maximum security men's prison. And it's about my journey from going from um, naive public school teacher to becoming a whistleblower on corruption within the prison system. And my, my efforts to clean up the system and testifying in front of the state house of representatives and, and things like that. So yeah, it's, it's, it's a really ugly system that most people never see. Mm -hmm. And that's what kind of makes my husband and I compelling is because he was just a regular middle-class guy next door before he made some really bad decisions in the heat of being panicked about losing his home and, and uh, having his children be homeless uh, at the time 
because the Great Recession was going on. Right. He, I mean, three months before he started robbing banks, he never would have thought he had told you you were crazy if if you told him he was going to rob banks. He's like, what? No. So people sometimes make stupid decisions. But so here we were, two middle class people. My dad was a sheriff's deputy. And the chances of us ever seeing the inside of a prison, a maximum security prison, had been pretty slim in our Mm -hmm. previous lives before ending up there. And so we were able to look at it, not as somebody who was conditioned to the system and who had lots of family members that were already in the system, you know, Mm -hmm. or had worked for the system. All of it was fresh and new to us. And so we were able to look at it like what regular everyday people would be surprised by. Right. Yeah. And there's a lot. I, I at one point was thinking of being a prison guard and one of my <laughs> uh, cop buddies like, Oh yeah, I used to work it. I'm good with the warden, but he's like, it's a rough life. Even for the guards. He's like, I, you're too nice. I don't think it would end well for you. And not just because of the inmates. Right. Yeah. He said, he's place. Oh no. He actually said that he's like the inmates, as long as you give them respect, they'll give you respect. But he's like the officers though. He's like, they're criminals. But they're not, he's like, but they're not in the system. That's the problem. Exactly. My, at my pre-hire drug screening, the officer who was doing that, we, you know, chit-chatted while we're doing the test and everything. And he goes, you know, you seem like a pretty nice lady. He said, and a lot of people are going to tell you, you need to beware of the silver tongue devils who are the inmates because they are going to try to talk you into doing and saying things that you shouldn't do. But I'm telling you right now, you're going to have to be just as careful with your coworkers because he said a lot of times, the only way you can tell the difference between the inmates and the employees is by the color of the uniform they wear. Mm-hmm. He was right. And that was a big one. Cause I, I talked to him and I was talking to um, a nice lady before all the pandemic lockdowns. And she even said the same thing. She's like, the the officers are just as bad as the prisoners, but because they have the shield, nothing really happens to them. Yeah, the the same major that I was blowing the whistle on mm-hmm. <clears throat> six months after I left the prison. Of course, I was the the horrible employee, supposedly, right? I was the right. one that had gotten rid of because I was just, you know, awful. Well, six months after I left that major was arrested by an outside drug task force for drug distribution. Mm-hmm. So that was vindicating to go, wow. Hmm. You thought I was bad. Yeah. Maybe you should have listened to what I was saying, you know, but yeah. sadly it turned out the wardens did know. Oh, they're they, usually in it on it. Well, they had been told by a sheriff, it turned out, a year before the arrest, what was going on and that they were investigating the major and they still covered for him. Mm-hmm. No, so. that's, that was the thing he was telling me. He's like, the police union in general, it's good, but he's like, the way it's it's gotten and too many people of corrupt power have gotten into the union. Essentially, he's like, that's why the, the shootings have gotten out, out of hand, the, the prison stuff, because he's like, essentially the union is going to stand there and block everything. And he's like, before the union would have been like, Oh yeah, you're right. He's a bit of a criminal. Here you go. Kind of thing. 
but now they're, they he's like it's he's like i'm appreciative of my job's safe but he's like at the same time i get the he's like the one bad apple makes the whole batch bad he's like i don't like associating with them either yeah and what happens is they then train the young people coming in to do the same thing to do the same thing and so that that one bad apple becomes entire bushel fulls yeah like the- two two or three cycles later officers they're all bad yeah yeah and it's really hard to to rehabilitate inmates and get them to be better human beings when they get back out on the street because 97% of all inmates do get back out on the streets. Mm-hmm. It's really hard to rehabilitate them when they're looking at the authority figures around them who are behaving criminally. So it's like, if they can do it, I can do it. Yeah. And sometimes they're taught worse lessons like the, the people who get their jollies just by intimidating people, you know, inmates and harassing inmates and jerking them around. It teaches these people, especially when they've been in five, 10, 15 years of being treated like this by multiple employees. It teaches them that as long as you have the upper hand, you can do whatever you want to to people. Mm-hmm. And that's a horrible lesson for them. It really to is. Yeah. They might end for some, you know, totally unrelated type of crime, but they come out fairly hardened mm-hmm. and with a chip on their shoulder and angry at law enforcement and anybody who wears a uniform. So that it's just really a bad, and, and they look at other people as, well, why can't I do something to you? Because it happened to me all the time. Right. You know what, Caroline? I love this. Can we do a quick introduction? I'm just going to keep all that introduction of what we were doing. Yes. So please introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Caroline Giamanco. And by day, I'm a high school English teacher, but I'm also a writer. I do true crime, nonfiction writing. And then my most recent project. It's called Into the Night. It was something that I wrote for fun because I was kind of burned out from the nonfiction. And it it is a collection of science fiction and paranormal short stories, and all of them have a twist to them. Ooh, I like it. We're definitely going to have to talk about the other three too. Okay. So we, we already did the introduction of what you were doing and where you're at with your books. Um, so what was your initial inspiration to write a book about your husband's conviction? Well, it was a, it was a crime spree that took national attention. It it had garnered national attention and he had refused to talk to any of the reporters. He did one good morning America interview and one with a local station. And those were the only interviews that he did. Larry King wanted to interview him. Geraldo Rivera wanted to interview him and Keith just wasn't going to do it. And one of the local interview that he did got twisted and turned Mm -hmm. to where it wasn't at all what he had said in his interview. And so he was like, Nope, I'm not doing another one. That's it. And this was his opportunity to tell exactly how the middle-class guy next door 
the guy who'd been the successful independent stock options trader went down the path of becoming a serial bank robber in the St. Louis area. And he always used notes. He never had a weapon or threatened to have a weapon. So he hasn't been a violent guy or anything like that. He was trying to keep the lights on and keep a roof over the heads of his twin daughters that he had sole custody of. Mm -hmm. So um, Keith trusted me enough to write the story so that he actually got to say not just about the crimes. We actually focused on the individual crimes very, very little okay. because the goal wasn't to glamorize or glorify the crimes because he feels horrible that he did those things. Most, um, most criminals do, surprisingly. Yeah. He's, he's very repentant about it. And if he was in another place in time, he would have never done those. He just, people do stupid things when they panic. Yeah. So he felt like he had no place to turn, nobody to talk to at the time. And he started making some poor choices for nine or 10 months out of his life. And now it's cost him 20 years out of his life with the prison term. So this was our opportunity to talk not about the crimes, but what happens to that regular everyday middle-class guy who doesn't have a criminal history, what it's like to go through the prison system, the, the court system, and then the prison system, because it's not a worldview that many of us ever get to have. Right. Yeah. And like I was saying earlier, like I've heard it secondhand from an officer that's been in it and he's, pre- he's pretty lawful by nature, but yeah, I don't, there's like a, I had a Navy SEAL on a couple of weeks ago and I told him like, there's certain things, unless you're in the shit, you'll never understand it. And it's the same yeah. applies for that one. Yes. Unless you have been inside. And so what we try to do, because I was an employee at the time inside the prison system, and I had never anticipated being inside a maximum security men's prison either. But there I was through just fate, basically, because with the Great Recession, the district I had worked for that I loved, it lost student population and it had to cut back staff. We had four full-time English teachers and we were down to 181 kids in the high school. They couldn't sustain that staff. Yeah. And so I was the last one hired. So I had to be the first one fired. So Mm -hmm. I lost position there and I, substituted for a year and that was okay but it definitely was not the same thing as being a teacher in a classroom and that's your identity you know you become a lot of times the job that you have and the career that you love that's part of how you self-identify right and I was starting to worry because things were looking horrible with the economy that maybe I'd never get my own classroom again and I had put in an application to work in the prison system as a teacher back when I was losing my job, when I first found out that the budget cuts were going to have to be made. Right. And a year later, over a year later, I got an e- or I got a letter saying, would you be interested in applying and inter- or interviewing for this position that we have at the South Central Correctional Center? And honestly... It wasn't on my bucket list to work inside a prison, 
But right. at the time, it was a steady guaranteed paycheck that would give me a classroom back. Mm-hmm. And so I had taught in alternative high schools in the past, and I had taught gangsters and hardcore people that had, um, you know, probation or parole officers and everything. And I thought, yeah, I, I can handle that situation. So I went ahead and uh, interviewed and I got the job. And so um, both Keith, my husband and I, I didn't meet him until I'd worked there for a year. Um, We, we saw a lot of the same things going on and were appalled by the exact same things, not just behavior by the inmates and, and, and what was going on there and where we see systemic problems and lack of rehabilitation and things like that, but also corrupt criminal, um, non-productive behavior that taxpayers are paying employees for that are they're being criminals on the job and our tax dollars are supporting this system. Mm-hmm. And so we felt that it was important to let people know what really happens inside our prison system. And also the fact that whether you want to believe it or not, while a lot of people want to say that everybody in prison is a monster and there are monsters in oh, there, there is. not everybody in prison is a monster. At least they didn't start off that way. Right. And they were people like your brother, your son, your next door neighbor who ended up there. And sometimes they're even like you and people don't feel comfortable with that concept because they want to believe that inmates are monsters to try to mentally and emotionally separate themselves from the people who go to prison because they don't want to think about how awful it would be to go to prison themselves. Yeah. Um, I actually have chatted not on the podcast, um, but just in general in passing uh, a few people I knew that went in the system. And they all told me, they're like, yeah, they say they give us food. And he's like, technically they do, but it might be like three month old bologna with mold in the middle and you only get to eat the edges. And he's like, and it's so preserved. It's like, you're better off not eating anyways. Yeah. Or the portions are so small that a kindergartner would still be hungry at the end of lunch if that's what they were given. And these are full grown men. And then that causes its own problems when you look at things like, okay, they then they need money from their families to buy items on canteen, but the canteen items aren't all that health, you know, that healthy either. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of starch and sugar. Honey buns are about the cheapest thing you can buy on the canteen. So a lot of guys will eat three or four honey buns a day. And that's not healthy. So then they start down the road having health problems. And I know the former director of the Missouri Department of Corrections was saying in an interview a few years back that, well, the high cost of medical care in the prisons, it's because of the lifestyles that the inmates are choosing. The inmates aren't choosing these diets. That's what's available to them. Right. Yeah, like one of my uh, coworkers that used to do security, and uh, his his like brother or something did. It was really stupid, and he got like this max. I think like he tagged a wall or something, and he got like fifteen years for it. 
I'm like, that's overkill personally. But he said, yeah, we have to go like once a month. Essentially, we have to work it out with whoever, like the canteen, like the, these Kansas tunas are just for, we'll call him Tony. Like when he comes, you only give it to him. I said, somehow they worked it out with them. But he's like, yeah, because he told me the same thing. The food really doesn't exist or it's so preserved and sugary. It doesn't even matter if you eat it, you're still going to get sick. Yes. And he's and like, I, so. The number of students that I had, and they were my students, but these were full of adult men. These were not kids in my classroom um, who were diabetic. Mm-hmm. I, at least 25% of everyone in my classes were diabetic. And that's way more than the general population. And so the only other way of looking at it is either diabetic people are more likely to commit crime, which I don't believe is true. I don't believe it either. Or there is something that happens to them inside the prison system that causes them to become diabetic, which I believe is what the cause of that is. Because diabetic people are not diabolical. No. At least, like, majority. There's always that, like, 1%, though. Right. But that's true of any type right. of person. Right. But you know what I mean? Like, it's, it's not just that, oh, brown-haired people are more likely to go to prison. No, that's, that's not the same thing. Right. Which is true. You know what I mean? It's not that diabetic people are more likely to commit crime. It's that once they're in the system... Between the sketchy health care and the, the poor diet that they have available to them, their bodies change and they develop these conditions. And then that also leads to heart conditions and things like that, that also cost the taxpayers money in their uh, health care. Oh, absolutely. Um, my one buddy from high school, his one grandfather actually intentionally got himself in prison because he had a very rare like brain disease. And he's like, if I commit a small crime, there'll be two years of my life, but they have to fix my head. And he's like, that wouldn't have cost me a million dollars, two years of my life. That's not hard. And I'm like, really? He's like, yeah, he did it. He literally, he's literally just getting out now. Uh, that wouldn't work in Missouri. It wouldn't I, work in Missouri. No, it would not work in Missouri. In my classroom, I had a guy who, had to leave class to go to the dentist. Okay, no problem. So he came back towards the end of class. Classes were three hours long. Came back towards the end of class and his entire jaw was swollen. I mean, it was like he had a baseball on the side of his face. Oh my God. And I'm like, Sturgeon, what did they do to you? What happened? Well, the dentist didn't just drill into his tooth. He drilled all the way down into the guy's jawbone. Why? and just because, and then the, my students said, what am I supposed to do now? You've like, you've ruined my jaw. And the dentist said, well, you're going to have to have reconstructive surgery after you get out. Ha 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 ha. Yeah. No, that wouldn't work here in California. Uh, that's the kind of thing that happens. I mean, Keith has seen um, people like he was in the same wing with a guy who for a couple of years had a horrible cough and he kept going to the doctor and saying, you know, there's something wrong with me. And they kept saying, well, you have allergies and they give them allergy pills or you have bronchitis here. Here's some more allergy pills. Well, finally 
he got so bad, he was coughing up blood and everything that it turned out he had by then had stage four lung cancer. And oops, guy died a few months later. Yeah. yeah. So when I see these cutesy comments or memes on social media that say that we should put grandma in a prison and inmates in a nursing home because um, at least in prison, they get free medical and free food and all this kind of stuff. It, believe me, you get what you pay for. Mm-hmm. And it is not quality care and it's not quality food. You should never wish anybody that you love is living in those conditions. It's the, um, so I read a book recently, recommendation of one of my guests called the Gulag Archipendigo. It was essentially the concentration camps, concentration camps for in Russia during uh, the, the the Soviet Union, and it was one of those. He told me it was an eerie comparison. He said, "If you listen to that, because I, I I listen better than I read," he's like, "You're going to notice there's something very similar about our prison system, but the way we're structured too." And I listened, and I'm like, "Holy shit, he's right! Like it's designed when you get in the system, you are not getting out." Or at least right. you're not you're not leaving the same. At least, right. It is. And Steve is trying really hard. He's been in 13 years now, okay. and he has made a conscious effort every single day to not get sucked into the prison mindset. Yeah, he really truly has tried to keep himself as normal as possible. And that, that's the hardest part. But as long as he has a goal, because I'm betting his reason to keep going is to eventually be with you, but still be the normal person. I'm yes. betting that. I could be wrong. No, it, it is. He wants to be out and be here for me and for his daughters and not be the messed up person that he sees around him every single day. So he doesn't talk to many people in prison. He doesn't have friends homies in prison he stays completely out of that and some of them think that he's really aloof and then probably a jerk or whatever because he doesn't join in with them but he sees people within six months of going in go from being a normal person to becoming a prison dude yeah yeah i'm just curious i've heard this from a a different person like a guest is tuna cans a currency in Michigan? In Missouri? Yeah, sorry, Missouri. Uh, they're not allowed any kind of metal at all. So, okay, then would be like some sort of food, like a protein. Is that like a, a, a thing they pass around as payment? Um, not necessarily. I mean, guys will trade canteen items, coffee, that kind okay. of thing. Um, cigarettes aren't allowed in our prison system any longer. So they can't trade cigarettes for anything. Um, They will trade postage stamps, things like that. But, and guys inside there will create stores. They'll order more of everything. And then guys have to come and buy from them at Mm -hmm. astronomical rates of return. Yeah. So that happens. Yeah. It was someone I was talking to. He, he was in the system for four years in England. And he's I'm like, what's the one weird thing that you didn't think was going to be a thing? And he's like, tuna cans are, he calls them tuna tins or a currency. Uh-huh. He's like, because he's like, all the guys that go in that become the hard monster. He's like, you can't grow your muscles unless you eat protein. He's yeah. like, so they would do, he's like, they'd do some crazy stuff to get the protein. 
He's like, some yeah. of them, like, I wouldn't even consider. Yeah, there are some really strange things that happen inside the prison system. There is. Yeah. So then I'm curious, uh, you touched on it earlier. You said your husband, before he, he didn't cho- fully choose it. It was kind of like a situational, I'm, I'm gathering. How did he make his money as an options trader? He he was just an independent stock options trader. That's okay. what he did. And then when the market crashed, he lost everything, like a lot of people did. Yeah, a lot of people did. And ironically, back in 2014, I took a, a plane trip to New York to see my youngest son at Fort Drum. Mm-hmm. And I got put in first class, which was kind of funny, but I'm sitting next to this guy who he was a stock trader on wall street. And he told me that he knew a guy, a guy who'd been his friend who had lost everything in one of those big houses where the whole trading house went Mm -hmm. bust. Right. And he didn't have the guts to tell his family that he was unemployed and Keith didn't let anybody know that he had lost all this money either. And this guy would get dressed every morning, kiss his wife and kids goodbye, take his briefcase and head to Central Park. And he'd sit there in Central Park all day long until it was time to go home and acted like nothing was going on. Well, then when it was getting closer to when, hey, wait a minute, there's no money coming in. He resorted to robbing banks with notes too. I just thought it was interesting that maybe people who are financial type people might gravitate towards bank robbery way before they go rob a gas station, you know, they because yeah. that's where their mind is. That is, is the financial arena. Yeah. Cause options are very much a, um, an instrument of the banks essentially. And if he's, if he was very successful, he would pretty much know the ins and out of a bank be like, Oh Yeah they're getting their payment Wednesday. So I'll do the thing Tuesday. So Wednesday comes, boom, I get my money. So he would know the basics and ins and outs. Yes. And interestingly enough, um, you want to know where he learned most of what he needed to know to rob banks? Where? The FBI website. Really? Yes. In fact, when he was arrested, the FBI agent said, how did you go? You're just like a regular middle-class guy, how did you know how to rob banks? And Keith said, you taught me. And the guy, the agent was like, what? And he goes, I went to the FBI website and on there, you tell about all the bank robberies and the people who were caught, I read what they did to be caught. And I thought, okay, I won't do that. And then the unsolved cases, I read what they had done. And he said, I'll do that. And that's how he knew how to pull off the bank robberies. And it was actually a fluke and employee broke protocol and followed him into the parking lot. And that's how he was finally identified. And the FBI agent told him, if you had stopped at number 12 or at number 11, we never would have known who you were. He said, we thought you were coming from Chicago or someplace to do this instead of living right here in the community. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah, I mean, he's he's a very smart guy. He just, part of it was ego and pride. He didn't want to admit that he had lost everything. 
Right. You know, he's been the go-to guy for his family. If people ever needed money or backup or something, he was always the one they went to and he didn't want them looking at him like a loser. Yeah. Most people in a competitive industry like that take pride in that. I can make it work. I can do this. And when it doesn't work out, they're like, well, I don't want to be like, ha, you said you can make it work kind of thing. Yes, exactly. So that's, that's how he got into it. And as I had mentioned before, the second book that I wrote was about, it was called Guilty Hearts. And it was looking at the profiles of different families who have an incarcerated loved one. And it's called Guilty Hearts because families carry the guilt and the shame and the stigma of their incarcerated loved one. And it's kind of a um, a shadow existence that they live in plain sight mm-hmm. because nobody wants, wants to be punished or dropped as a friend or, or lose their job because they love somebody who's incarcerated. And I've had people say to me, well, how could you love an inmate? How could you marry an inmate? And my answer is simple. I didn't marry an inmate. I married Keith, the man that I love. Right. And he happens to be incarcerated right now, but that's not his identity. He's not just an a faceless inmate, one of masses. He's a full-fledged human being who made mistakes and is now paying for them. But I didn't go out looking in life to marry an inmate. I just happened to find the man that I love in -hmm. a very unusual circumstance. Yeah. And so go ahead. I would say just love appears in manners that you don't even fathom and you just have to strike when it does. Exactly. And I wasn't going to pass up an amazing person just because he's not out there still pulling in the money as an independent stock options trader. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that just seems extremely shallow to me. And so, yeah, I'm the one paying all the bills right now, but it's not the first time in my life that I've been the one paying the bills. So right. That's that's just the way it is right now. And so, so I, I wanted to give a voice because a lot of people at book signings for my first book, Banknotes, about Keith's crime spree um, and his experience in prison, a lot of people would say, well, you seem really normal. And, and well, yeah, I guess you and Keith, are, you know, they'd read it and they go, you and Keith, you guys are okay. You aren't, I'll tell you what, some of those other people, they're just like the crazy cat lady. and. I thought, no, I know a lot of people who are very normal, decent people who just had something unfortunate happen in their lives, and they're not going to stop loving their husband. They're not going to stop loving their son or their brother just because he made a mistake and he's in prison. Mm -hmm. Because when I worked for the department, the number one leading indicator they taught us at our seminars was the number one leading indicator for inmates to have success on the outside and not reoffend is to have a strong, positive social network. So society wants anyone who loves an inmate to 
do the right thing and just save themselves and, and not have anything to do with the inmate anymore. But really, society is not served well by having the inmate lose everybody who's important to them. Because when they get out, if they don't have anybody to be good for, what's the, it's already hard enough for inmates when they get out. What's the sense of even trying anymore if they don't have anyone positive in their life anymore? So it's, it's short-sighted for society to expect people to, to throw away someone who made a mistake. And there's a lot of people who do things in life that are very destructive, but that doesn't mean that they, um, they go to prison for it. Right. I, I contend that the president of the Chamber of Commerce, who has a pinstripe suit and a briefcase, who is Mr. Wonderful out there in the community, but goes home and belittles and um, emotionally, verbally, and sometimes even physically abuses his own children, say he has four kids. Those are broken people now. Mm-hmm. And they're going to go out into society and have broken relationships with other people. But yet everybody says, what a great guy Joe is, the president of the Chamber of Commerce. Those, those are more damaging than if somebody steals my individual car. But yet society is going to say that the guy who stole my car is the monster that needs to be in prison. And you steal a car and you go to prison, but you destroy your children and you're still a high ranking member of society. So it's not as simple as, well, they broke the law. A lot of times people do bad things, but don't break laws. That's actually one thing. Um, I've had a chat. Well, um, I do martial arts. So my martial arts instructor, one of his close friends is going in and he's like, I don't get it. He was a good person, this and that. And I said, did you only know him topically? You would only talk to him at parties. He's like, yeah. I'm like, it's easy to carry a facade for an yeah. hour or two easy but the beast is hidden behind the mask the moment he gets home the teeth show and yes. that's where i said it's hard to trust someone if i'm like i told him in a less polite way i said essentially if you trust him instantly something's wrong kind of thing yeah. psychopaths are getting people to like them instantly that's right because so, he didn't realize he was a psychopath i told him like that is his brain feels no emotion. He does not care about the consequences. He will crush whoever's in his way for his success. Yes. And I said, but he never physically hurt someone. And by your definition, then he hasn't done a crime. Now that you've heard all this, is he a criminal? And he's like, but I, I, we can't measure that. I'm like, of course you can't measure it. It's not a physical item. It's not like a car. We can say it's six feet long, three feet wide. This is, emotional deep scars that you'll never be able to measure and because you can't see it does it exist then yes exactly and so it's a whole lot easier for people though to just say oh those bad criminals let them rot in prison forever but that's not necessarily the the cure for improving society it's not it's 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 just not and so then my third book that I wrote was called Inside the Death Fences Memoir of a Whistleblower. And it it follows me on my journey from going from public school teacher to teaching at a maximum security men's prison for two and a half years. 
and my determination after being in there and seeing the corruption that happens that we pay for as taxpayers of cleaning up the system because it is not helping our communities at all to have a corrupt prison system. I've had legislators tell me, well, that's just the way it is. You know, I don't know. We can't do anything about it. Yeah, you can. They're the ones that hold the purse strings. They're the ones that have the power to say, you guys are going to clean up your act. And they need to get the gumption. They're afraid that their opponent will say, oh, well, you're soft on crime because you were saying that there were problems inside the prison system. No, corrupt systems do not rehabilitate people. They don't. And so we get a very poor product for all the millions and millions of dollars that we spend on so-called corrections in this country. It's, I mean, it's like $725 million a year just in Missouri. So you think of the 50 states, those are billions of dollars that are being spent on corrections. And they're not, in many cases, doing anything to truly rehabilitate these people. Keith always says rehabilitation should start day one. The first day somebody steps foot inside a prison, they should start getting intensive rehabilitation intensive therapy to stop whatever behavior it was that led them to be in prison in the first place, Mm -hmm. because the only way we're going to fix them. And that reminds me when I first started working at the prison, my oldest son came home on leave from the air force and he was um, security forces. And he and the warden started talking about um, the, the differences between the European system and the American system. And the assistant warden laughed and said, well, we don't even try to fix anyone here. And I thought, lady, you just said the wrong thing in front of me. Because if we're not here, I mean, I'm a teacher. I believe you're like, my job was to help people better themselves. Mm-hmm. And I, um, I thought, lady, you said the wrong thing to the wrong person. Because here you are, the head of a corrections department facility, one of the assistant wardens, and you think it's laughable that we even try to fix anybody in here. That right there is the problem. That's what poisons entire systems, is that mentality. And then it's no wonder that that bad person gets out and rapes and kills and robs again, because they weren't given any kind of tools to become anything other than that. And a lot of times they become worse when they're inside. They went in for a fairly petty crime and come back wanting to kill and rampage. And that's just not effective for our communities. It's not, it's not like when I was talking to the Navy SEAL guy, um, he he even said, he's like, there's, there's something fundamentally wrong with the system. Cause he's like, the army trains you to be a good soldier, but he's the problem is they don't train you to be a good civilian. He's like, it almost should be like, they gave you two months beforehand before you fully leave and just condition you and retrain you back. And as I'm listening, I'm thinking the same thing. It's like his analogy is right, right out of the gate. But like, I had a conversation with one of my cousins in uh, Washington when I was on vacation and we were, we were listening to news how Seattle is getting overrun with crimes, not enough cops because people are leaving because it's underfunded. And then we had a fire somewhere nearby and no one put it out. And I just told him, like, the problem with the system and how it works is it's your department, your problem. Make it work. If it's not working, we're actually going to cut you more money. 
And I said, it becomes a very self-fulfilling prophecy. You don't work because you don't have enough money. They cut you. It doesn't work. You lose more money. They cut you. Yes. Oh, and with corrections, it's the opposite. It's not working. And we keep giving them more money every year. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Because when I first started um, writing about all this stuff, we were at like um, 680 million a year. And now we're up over 725 million. And it's not because they've gotten better. And we actually have fewer inmates in the Missouri system now, but yet every year they want more from the state legislature and they get it. And so it, those, now you have an idea as to why those books were so emotionally draining for me. Mm-hmm. It was like going through a meat grinder and reliving everything all over again, every single day. Right. When I was writing them. So when I finished with inside the death fences, I was burned out and I wasn't even sure if I was ever going to write anything else again, because I was so tired and, and emotionally spent from it. And I thought, well, maybe I'll just write some things for fun. Mm -hmm. So I started writing, um, science fiction and paranormal. And I've written some Westerns and some general fiction and into the night is specifically a paranormal and science fiction, short story collection. And they were a lot of fun to read. And it, um, it was the first time I've done fiction. And so I was a little nervous about it. And I, was really excited when Sean Burgess, who wrote the best-selling book, The Tear Collector, he read the advanced reader copy and wrote a wonderful complimentary blurb for the back of the book. And it it was really nice because I'd gotten a lot of recognition from people for my nonfiction work. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people from NBC and Oxygen and places like that who endorsed my books. And so it was really nice to have the situation where I, I'm also getting people who are well-known and successful in the fiction world also um, praising my work. So that was that that's been kind of affirming for me. That's, so that's good. Been, yeah. Yeah. So then let, let's, um, without giving away all the details, because we got to get them to buy the book, what are some of the stories you go into? Oh, my goodness. Okay. I have stories um, that deal with everything from aliens to demons to um, interdimensional travelers. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. So it's like everything um, then. Everything. Um, there's a time travel story. There are a, a lot of different stories, different types of stories. And two of my favorite authors have always been O. Henry because he always had this twist at the end where there was a, a, a surprise that the reader wasn't expecting. Mm-hmm. So I like to, to include those in my writing. And Franz Kafka who a lot of people know Franz Kafka through the metamorphosis where the guy wakes up and he's a, an insect. Oh, okay. He was a German author. 
Kafka's stories are very much where you you're having an everyday, normal, regular, mundane day, and then the whole world crashes around you. And so I I like to be kind of Kafka-esque too. One of my college professors, one time, he he told us the story about he and his wife going to the grocery store, just a regular mundane activity, right? And there was this huge wall of windows on the front by the cash register. We've all been in grocery stores like that. And suddenly, while he and his wife were checking out, there was a car that lost control and came crashing through the window. And it almost hit his wife. And shards of glass are raining down everywhere. And he said, that's what a Kafka story is like. You're having this everyday event go on. And all of a sudden, your world has all these shards of glass coming down. I just got goosebumps just hearing that story. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, I'm trying to fathom. I'm For me, I'm not a very visual person. So I'm not like, like a photo or like this, like we're talking. I can't pull pictures up like that, but I can feel like my body fathoms the experience. And wow, that would have been terrifying. Yeah. Yeah, where it seems like it's just a normal day and you're not even really paying attention to much. And then all of a sudden this cataclysmic thing happens. And so um, I try to incorporate things like that into my writing. And I also work really hard to have authentic emotion in it and authentic characters. Okay. Um, I'm, I don't go heavy. You know how some authors will describe the exact shade of hair that somebody has and the the shoes that they're wearing. I don't do that. I don't want to be Thomas Hardy writing three pages about what the tea set looked like. I don't want (laughs) to do that. That drove me crazy in college reading that stuff. That was me. Sorry. you I'll say that was me when I was listening to Moby Dick. I was like three chapters to explain a whale. We get it. Yeah. It's a a big it's a big ocean living creature. We got it. Yeah, exactly. And I tend to let people visualize it themselves. Like I might say, like one of my characters, you know, the wind blew wisps of brown hair into her face or whatever. But that's, that's the most description I'm going to give you of that person because I try to write it so that people can actually picture that person however they want to mm-hmm. not, instead of being so wrapped up in trying to visualize well, what does this person look like you said they look like this and this and you know no just go with the story and feel like you're there in the moment with that person with it happening and there are a couple of the stories that even bothered me now like some of them are lighthearted and sweet and Others of them bothered me. Like some of them trouble me still. And one of them, it's called um, charcoal drawings. And late at night is when I do my best writing because the world doesn't interfere with my thoughts or anything like that. So I'll be laying there in bed typing and 
so I got into writing this story. I had like maybe the first third written. Well, so then I really got into it and I wrote and I got to the end of it. And I realized it was 1.30 in the morning and it was completely dark in my room. <laughs> and I'm like, oh man, oh, I do not feel comfortable right now because it's about a teacher. And I could completely feel everything that that teacher was going through in, in this. And that was another one where it starts off. It seems like really sweet. What a cute little story. And then it's not cute. It, it reveals it's like, oh, holy cow. <laughs> Don't so turn curious, off those lights. <laughs> do not turn off the lights anymore. I'm curious <laughs> your method for writing. Is it you just plot out a certain time of the day and be like, I must hit so many word counts by the end of the evening, or it's just, it is what it is. If I get two pages done, it's great. If not, there's always tomorrow. I am the antithesis of a plotter. And I, I am not one of those people who believes that in order to be a real writer, you have to write every single day and everything. My life does not go around that. Like <laughs> I, I teach full-time a lot of times I'm tired. I get home. I have a farm. You know, there's just a lot of stuff to do. And if I'm not feeling like writing, throwing words on the page that I'm probably going to delete anyway because they were trash is not worth it. Okay. I need to be in the right frame of mind. And when when the ideas get to the point that they bubble up, that they have to be told, I'll write, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I just, I'm not one of those people who says, well, I have to write 2000 words a day or else I'm a failure as a writer or whatever. Mm-hmm. Forget that. No. And I know I'm kind of, I'm definitely what they call a pantser. I write by the seat of my pants. I'll come up with an idea and I'll start writing and the story unfolds. And in my mind, it's like I'm having in the dialogue, I'm having the conversations back and forth with people. And I think, well, what would be the natural response? And then I would, I just type that as though it's literally happening. And I can see them, you know, I might say, well, he leans over, you know, well, I can see all this happening. And so I, it transfers to the page and I, uh, I I believe that if I tried to make it to where I had to write every day or I had to reach a certain word count, that it would seem too much like drudgery to me and I would lose my creative spark altogether. I couldn't do that. And I probably come up with my story ideas in a different way than a lot of people do. I will think of sometimes 10 or 15 at a time titles for stories. And I will make a Google doc for each of those titles. Okay. And then some other time I'll go in and I'll be looking at the titles and think, Oh, I think this would be a great concept. And so I'll write a few sentences down that Google doc of what, of like what the character's name should be the main character and what the general premise is of the story. And then that's as far as I go on, plotting anything out i'll know what i want to have happen at the end of the story but the middle is free game 
yeah, the beginning, the beginning and the middle is, is just to let that creativity flow to get them to that point. Right. And so that's how I write. And I know it's not like a lot of people write, but it works for me. Hey, at least it works. Cause I'm going to say the only reason I asked was I, I read the memoirs of Stephen King for writing and he's like every day, no matter what, even if it's about a chicken taking the shit in the yard, you're writing it. I'm like, that'd be a waste. Cause I'd scrap that story anyways. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I like I do the 2000, but then I just be like, that's stupid. It's literally just chicken in the yard, taking a shit and eating bugs. Yeah. Why did I do this. Exactly. It's got to have a point. And Keith has said all along that I don't ever do anything unless it matters. Mm-hmm. And so if I put my time and attention towards something, it's because I believe it matters. And I'm not going to sit there and write something unless I really want it to matter. It's not going to just be an exercise in futility. It has to be actually productive in some type of way, or there wasn't any sense in doing it because it does take energy to do. Oh, it it does. does. It it takes a part of you to pour into these stories, and it, unless I'm going to make it something that I'm happy with then there's no sense in, in doing it. And it's not as though I don't go back and edit and edit and edit and edit. I definitely do. For some people, they can write it and go back and check for occasional errors and then they're good. Not me. I don't know why, but for me, it's kind of writing is kind of like um, creating an alabaster sculpture Mm-hmm. Alabaster is very hard and you have to sand it and sand it and sand it and sand it. And that's what I tend to do is I write the story out and not that it was bad, but I'll go through and go, you know, I've used that word a couple of times. I need to use a different word, you know, and just, or, oh, I need to add this aspect to it. And so for me, all of my books have taken between a year and a half and two years to write Okay, just, be- just because I'm not satisfied with the first run or the second run or the third run or the fourth run. I have to go through and give it time and give it space in my head to go through and look at it fresh. That was actually one thing I noticed that you did that King recommended is to put it aside for a couple of months. So it's not fresh in your brain. And then when you look at it, because it's not up currently a part of you you can easily kill your children to make it work better because like if it's yeah. still fresh you're gonna be like but aunt jemima has to be on the chair and then when you reread it like why is she on the chair exactly yeah i you know or you realize okay in my mind as that movie was playing out in my head i saw it doing this but i never said i i left out this part of what was going on or there needs to be more of this or more of that here and there. Mm-hmm. And, and so, yeah, for me, it takes a while, but um, generally I'm, I'm pretty happy with how it turns out. And thankfully I've had a lot of people who've been pleased with it. And there is a, a narrator. She is a voice artist named Nari Kwok who has the into the night podcast. Okay. And she does podcasts of my stories. Some of them are in the book and others are just like uh, 
Westerns or, you know, general fiction type of stories that, that aren't in there. And so anyway, she has garnered a, a fairly substantial following for that. And um, she also did the voice work for Inside the Death Fences, and she's got the contract to do the Audible book for um, for Into the Night, too. Wonderful. Good for her. Yeah. Yeah, she's a great lady. Yeah. I'm assuming her voice is very soothing um, and good, very wonderful to listen to kind of thing. It is. It definitely is. Okay. <laughs> That's one of those. I'm going to have to look up the podcast. What is it? The Into the Night show? Into the Night pod. Okay. Yeah. Like if you go on Twitter, it's at Into the Night pod. Into the Night pod pod there we go I and my twitter is at giamonco book okay um yeah we'll get that i'll get that linked up and everything um i'll throw that uh twitter in uh anything else you want specifically to go over um with your books or did you think we caught everything um Just that I'm I'm really excited that I was able to write this book and that Tuscany Bay Publishing published it. It it's those are topics that I've been interested in my whole life. I grew up with my family talking about the possibility of aliens or what else is out there or what possibilities exist in the world that we live in right now, ghosts and that kind of thing. I grew up watching. And the Night Gallery, Twilight Zone, Kolshak, The Night Stalker, all of those. I was the youngest in my family. And so I was watching things that that the older kids or the parents were watching at that time. Mm-hmm. And so it's it was just always a topic in our house. And my sons and I have experienced quite a few really unusual paranormal type experiences, not seeking them out. I don't understand these ghost hunter shows or anything where they're trying to make contact because no, thank you. Not looking for that, but yeah, I've happened to run into some situations that were extremely unsettling to where it's just kind of um, kind of natural to write about these kinds of things. And, and, you know, after the hard, hard press, true crime stories that I've written, it was nice to be able to create the monsters instead of write about the real ones. Right. So uh, there's been a lot of enjoyment from that too. I'd also like to say that Into the Night releases on August 20 or August 17th. Let me repeat that. Into the Night releases on August 17th. Okay. I just typed in Into the Night. There's like so many different variances of it. So I'll figure out which one's hers. Yeah, it's at Into the Night Pod on Twitter. Okay. I will. I do not have Twitter on my phone, so I'll pull that up later. Um, okay. I do want to add something, though, on the ghost thing. Um, 
I, I've had some interesting experiences too with ghosts and people like, Uh oh, they don't exist. I'm like, they're maybe not like the, the transparent human or the ghost sheet thing, but it's like, it's energy. Cause like the house I was up in Washington for vacation, it was, it was essentially a quarantine place for lepers back in 1800. So they didn't really have a, huh? Interesting. Yeah. So there's a lot of paranormal activity in that house. And it's, they're nothing malicious or anything like that. But like, if you have your phone, you can make a call outside. The moment you walk in, everything's gone. But there's signal yeah. all around the place. And that's where I, I always joked with my parents because we would hear creaking and this and that. And it, there was no wind. I'm like, oh, the ghosties are walking again. Hopefully they don't do anything crazy today. Well, when my boys were little, we moved into a house in Bolivar, Missouri. And they were visiting their dad in Seattle while I had moved in there, right? So I moved in while they were still on their summer visit with their dad. So they fly in, they come in, everything seems okay. I noticed a couple of weird things in the house, you know, but it's like, well, I signed a lease. This is where we're going to be for right now, right? Mm -hmm. So about one of the first nights that they slept in the house, you know, those old um, unfinished those stores that used to have unfinished furniture and you could buy the furniture and then stain it and varnish it and everything yourself. Mm -hmm. Well, there were some heavy duty um, bunk beds that my boys had that I had done that with. I had finished it myself, heavy wood, right? So one night Rick's on the top bunk, Kevin's on the bottom bunk and the light, you know, the lights are out. It's time to go to bed. And they can hear this breathing (sighs) and Rick tells Kevin, Kevin, stop it. Go to sleep. Kevin's like, I didn't do anything. You stop it. Right. Kevin, stop. It's quiet. And they hear. (sighs) And Rick goes, Kevin, I mean it. Stop. Right. And Kevin's like, I didn't do it. And so they start arguing back and forth. And then they realize they can still hear the breathing while they're arguing with each other. And they both stopped and they listened. And it realized that it, that they could hear them. And I heard the commotion and I didn't know what was going on. And the boys slept with me every night after this. (laughs) Um, I hear the boys screaming and I hear this loud noise of something being drugged across the floor. And then I heard what I thought was them banging into the washer and dryer as they came running through the house to get to my room. Well, the next morning, their heavy bunk bed had been dragged three feet across the floor. Holy shit. It dragged them across the floor. They came tumbling out and they said, mama, we didn't touch the washer and dryer. The lids were coming up and down, banging as they ran past. And then lots of scary stuff happened in that house. Like you'd watch the, there was this weird little room off to the side of just outside my bedroom. And it was, it was too big for a pantry, but it wasn't big enough for a bedroom. It was just a weird setup. And we could lay there in bed and watch because the boys were like in kindergarten and second grade at this point Mm -hmm. we could watch the door handle turn and the door swing open and then it would close by itself and then the door handle would turn back and forth stuff like that 
Oh, yeah, that's just one of the many things that we saw happening. And so when those movies, Paranormal Activity, came out, we're sitting in the theater watching it, and we're going, oh, yeah, Bolivar. Yep, uh-huh. Oh, Kathy and Dan's house. Yep, mm-hmm. Get us. So everybody else is freaking out, and we're going, oh, yeah, that's like what happened here and what happened there. So we, we kind of laughed at the only thing we hadn't thought about, and we were kind of glad we had, was putting the talcum powder down on the floor to see if we got footprints. <laughs> oh, that would have been terrifying. <laughs> yeah, probably better we didn't know. Um, yeah, for me, like I, for a hot month and a half, I helped my aunt move up to like a ranch area in Idaho. And um, it was one of those, they were getting ready to do a second run back to California, but they had us using walkie-talkies. So I put one in to charge it and I fired one up. I accidentally crossed it with feedback and all that. And then I like my cousin's like, why'd you do that? I'm like, sorry, sorry. So I jokingly put it the other way. And suddenly we hear a trombone faintly in the background. And then I just, I like, I pause and I pull up my fingers. Like, no, 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 no. I put it back and you can still hear it. And then suddenly it stops and you hear a whisper. Did you like my music? Oh, yeah. And then I kind of just like, yes. When did you that learn it? That was awesome. That yeah. was great. When did you learn it? And he said, I died playing this song and it was gone. And that's where I had to ask my aunt. I'm like, okay, was there a battle on this place by chance? And she's like, yeah, was it like Oregon trails? The Indians were fighting the people. It was a bloody battle. Hundreds died here. I'm like, I me, me and your nephew just had a conversation with one of the soldiers. So I'm like, you might want to get some rosemary and bless this place. As sage. Much as, yeah. Yeah. Burn some sage around here. Yeah. And that's where and she's like, oh, yeah, we weren't going to tell uh, the little guy. I'm like, yeah, well, he just heard it from a ghost on the walkie talkie. Yeah. <laughs> Holy cow. Yeah. Rick was stationed with a guy. It was his roommate at Whiteman Air Force Base. And the guy wanted Rick to go out with him that night. Mm-hmm. And normally, yeah, of course, Rick would be up for it. But he said something just told him, no, just don't. And the guy's like, no, nah, come on, Rick, we'll have a good time. And he's like, no, no, let's just not do it, right? And I'm, I'm not going. You go have a good time, but I'm staying home. Well, the guy had a horrible wreck in his truck that night and was killed on the way home. Mm-hmm. And Rick would have been, too, if he'd been with the guy. And so a couple of the guys that they were stationed with were into the ghost hunter type stuff. And they had right. recording equipment. And they set a recorder out by the guy's truck at the salvage yard. Okay. And they played it for Rick. And it was crazy because on the recording, you could hear somebody pop the top on a beer and then take a drink and go (sighs) like that. And they told him, you know, they called him by name. I can't remember exactly what his name was, but they told him goodbye at the truck. You know, they're standing there at the truck and they they said, man, we're going to miss you, you know, bye. And the guy's voice said, bye. Back on the recording. Yeah, no, I it's like the radio thing. It's totally possible. My, my theory with ghosts is, yes, they're, we as humans are energy whether we like it or not. And you mm-hmm. can't necessarily destroy energy. It either it's transferred or it stays, but that's it. That's really all mm-hmm. we can do. I'm like. That's science. It, right. 
the spirit, whatever you want to call it, it's energy. Well, if the energy doesn't move on, so that part is up to you if it's heaven or hell or if you're still here, what is it going to do? Well, if it has human inclinations, it's going to learn how to gather more energy and not necessarily in a good way. And it'll be that's where it gets to your house where it's just moving stuff because it's been there so long. It's gotten so much uh, essence. Power. Right. Yeah. That it it just doesn't know what to do other than act like a human and bash everything because it's just emotion at that point. Yeah. And usually not good comforting emotion. No, it's not. It's usually the anger and regret that it keeps them there. Yeah. And uh, the reason I bring that up is there's a place in Oregon called the Oregon Vortex. I actually don't know if it's still open. I haven't gone in like 10 years, but it's one of those, like, if you take a ruler, there's like six of us. This side where my hand is supposed to be at the tall side. This is where it's short. You take the photo, it switches. Really? And it's it's not because of the camera and the filtering and angles. They did it with a mirrorless camera and took it and the same thing happened with the the film and they had it developed. So that was one of those. I'm like, okay, we're getting in. They had us do it. And there's one where if you roll only this one water bottle, like wine bottle down, it rolls uphill. And there's nothing beneath. He actually built a light, like, he's like, I had to make a deal with the ghost, by the way. He's like, I felt like I made a deal with the, uh, the devil. I, he did not want me to cut it. And essentially I told him, I need to show people you're, you're not, you're a thing. So he lifted it and we did it again. There's no magnets. There's no anything. It's an empty like ramp. And it was one of those, I jokingly being a kid, like, cause he said, do not roll it uphill. He's like, for the God's sake, do not do that. So for me, I'm thinking, like, oh, he's being theatrical. He wants more sales yeah. and this and that. I did it. And afterwards, he showed us, too, the whole house started shaking. And there was a terrible howl. And he literally looked and said, boy, what did I say? Do it the other way. We're just going to tear it apart. So I rolled Whoa. back down, and it stopped instantly. And then that's where he's like, if I say something, I mean it. So he took us under and showed us everything. There was no earthquake things. There were no speakers. And that, that's when Melee, I just sat there. I'm like, all right, you win. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that thing in the house in Bolivar, I would have to make deals with it, you know? And I, I would talk to it because like it, activity would get really big. Mm-hmm. And I was concerned for my sons and right. myself. Right. And I had to explain to him, you know, my boys and I, we just needed someplace to live. You know, the lease was up in December mm-hmm. and we, this isn't our house. We don't think this is our house. This is your house, but we just need a place to live here. We, right. for right. just the time being, we needed a place to live. This is still your house and things would calm down for a few days and then it would start amping back up again. And I'd have to have the same talk with it again mm-hmm. and be like, you know, we, we're not trying to take your house. We know this isn't ours. So just, you know, be patient because we, we will be leaving and then you can have your house back mm-hmm. and, and things would get better. Yeah. There's been all kinds of weird things that have happened in life. And I taught out on the Navajo reservation for a while and years ago, and my sons, when they were young, oh, they were 
Well, I think it was that same year when they were in like kindergarten and second grade. My oldest still remembers this. The youngest was sleeping in the back seat. Well, we were driving down the highway on the Navajo reservation out by Fort Defiance. And it's about 1130 midnight. Mm-hmm. And I hit my brakes because there's obviously somebody was running across the road. My flashlight, I mean, my headlights are on high beam, right? Mm-hmm. So you can clearly see everything. Well, there were tennis shoes and jeans running across. There was nothing from the top up, from the waist up. There was nothing. And you could see through. Like, it wasn't like, oh, I just can't recognize that. There were only blue jeans and sneakers running across the road. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. The only thing I could think of. I mean, it's brutal to say, but you would have seen the blood is like if he, he freshly got decapitated, he or she and the body like for a hot second can still function without the brain. Right. That's the only thing I could think of rationally. But if you're just this saying was the whole top half, gone. Yeah, just gone. Yeah. And but, then when we when we got past there, you couldn't see anything anymore. So it's not like the jeans and sneakers were on the side of the road or something. And both Rick and I are like, did you see that? <laughs> and to this day, occasionally he'll say, mom, I was telling somebody about this. Do you remember when we were driving across the reservation and there were just jeans and sneakers running across the road? And I'm like, yep, I definitely remember it. That's not something you forget. Yeah. Yeah. Is that, is you and I have to have to actually talk more at some point. We oh, do. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. We have seen some stuff. Oh, yeah. Like the the Washington house, when we were, me and my sister were younger, like grandma and grandpa went out to town to go get some food. It's like a 20 minute drive. So we're like, okay, we'll stay home. We promise we won't start a fire kind of thing. Joking. Yeah. Joking. And it's one of those, my grandma just bought a laptop and we're like, okay, we brought it to the table. We're playing this cool, like solitaire game, like burning monkeys, solitaire. And we're playing it and we both, like, we both close it go to the stove to make ourselves like a grilled cheese. And then I look up because I was a taller one. And I'm like, Leah, why did you move the, the, the laptop back to the, the, the living room? She's like, I was here this whole time. And I'm like, well, I don't remember doing that action. Did I leave at any time? She's like, no, Mike. And we just look up, looked at each other, looked at the floor. We're not talking about this. Mm-mm. When I'm, we lived in Roswell for a year. Okay. So we were running a house in Roswell, the boys and I, they were, they were young and I had a bad feeling about the house and they did too. Like it was kind of weird. And like, there was like, I don't know, just something not comforting about the house. Right. Right. To look at it, it looked perfectly fine. Well, of course, then I find out when I'm getting ready to move at the end of the year that before I moved in the property management company had to come in and completely redo the entire inside because it had all been painted. All the walls had been black and there were pentagrams all over the place. Yeah. It's kind of important to know. Should have told the new teacher in town. I'm just saying, you know? And so this one night I was up late grading papers and I had the little table lamp next to me, right? And I'm sitting on the couch in the living room. And this was back in the day of the VHS tapes. 
right? Mm -hmm. So the little recorder is there underneath our TV. And the door started to open and close on it all by itself. And I looked over at it and I kid you not, because it was one of those that would, would speak to you. It would say like open, close, you know? Right. But this was saying, hello, goodbye. Hello, goodbye. Over and over again. And I'm like, sweet baby Jesus, please (laughs) watch over us, please. Yeah. Yeah, But I'm done grading papers right now. I'm just going to my room. You got your last goodbye. I'm leaving. That's right. Bye. Yes. Yeah. um, So this is one thing I I joke with people who are willing to listen to my stories. Um, So back in high school, there was this one guy, we'll call him Jimmy. I actually don't really remember his name. But so Jimmy was going to go hang out with a bunch of buddies. And they found this old Ouija board at a uh, thrift store. Mm-hmm. And it was one of those. He like he like took a photo. It's back when like photos cost like 50 cents to send. So he like sent it to his email and sent it to all of us. So he shows me like, hey, I'm like, hey, something's wrong with this board, though. I said, the, the handle, it looks like it's bone, like the, the little triangle thing. And the, the thing, it's it looks like things have been mashed together and not in the same way. I'm like, I wouldn't touch that. Like you, you couldn't pay me enough to touch that. He's like, ah, it's okay. He's like, actually like we're, we're going to just like maybe get drunk, hang out with the girls. And we're going to try to contact Hitler. I'm like, that is a really dumb idea. That's a really dumb idea. I'm telling you right now, something's not going to go well. Yeah. He's like, he's like, screw you. So it's one of those, he did it. And I didn't see him for a day or two. And I was like, okay, like, he was young. I didn't drink, but I'm like, maybe he drank too much kind of thing. He's in the hospital. He comes to the school and he was a, a standard issue, human, straight backed, very athletic, um, good hair, like soft eyes. He's twisted. His body looks like it's been ripped and torn and then replaced together. His shoulders are off by a lot. He, then it's one of those, he, he had a hood, but he had longer hair in general. So it was kind of, it would always cover his eyes. And, but he was breathing like a beast. And I was like, Hey, Jimmy, Jimmy, you okay, buddy. I like tapped his shoulder kind of like, Hey, he turns up and his whole face is twisted. His eyes are glowing gold and he was <gasps> blue eyed. And he said, all I remember. And I just, where I just walked away and didn't say anything. He's like, Jimmy's not here anymore. And what? I'm like, and just walked away. Apparently, they found him later. He killed himself or something. But I was like, oh, my God. I think I just saw a demon. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, we are going to talk more. Oh, yeah. We definitely have to talk more in the future. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's some stuff right there. That is. A lot of people have told me, like, you need to just write, like, a... a like a story, almost like a biography of the crazy stuff you've been through. I'm like, maybe, but like, do I just make fictional characters or kind of like the symbolic, this is me, but it's not me. Yeah. Yeah. Now that's, that's interesting stuff right there. It is. Yeah. Things didn't go well for Jimmy. No. And 
now that I'm older, looking back, I'm like, he probably didn't even get lucky with the ladies. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that kind of thing is generally a turnoff. <laughs> yeah. Girls. <laughs> yeah. We're going to go contact Hitler, ladies. You want to go uh, go have some fun? They're like, no. Well, no. And the whole suddenly I'm a hunchback kind of thing. Just, yeah, it doesn't play well either. It you doesn't. know, that's. Oh, man, that's bad. Yeah. And that's where one of those, like, afterwards, I was talking to my buddy because he knew of him. He would see me talking to him. So he was one of those, like, okay. I'm like, hey, you saw me earlier with that. He's like, yeah, that weird guy with the hoodie. Kind of looked like a Jimmy, but it wasn't. I'm like, no, that was totally Jimmy. But, yeah, that, that wasn't But it him. wasn't. <laughs> but it wasn't. Something was completely missing about him. And that's where he or, reminded or me. Or added. Oh, yeah. added to Jimmy that was not, not good. Jimmy. <laughs> That's where he reminded me recently. He's like, yeah, I remember that guy. Because it was a weird coincidence. Jimmy showed up, but then we had a, 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 a drug dealer on campus. We all knew he was the dealer. Even the teachers did. No one bugged him. Uh-huh. And he was kind of the dr- dealer where he'd intentionally make concoctions just to see how people react. Uh, a mad scientist dealer. Yes. We'll, we'll go with that. Um, he decided because he had a couple of split caps of ecstasy, ecstasy, some extra mushrooms left over and a little bit of acid. Why don't I just mash it together, sell it to someone for $50 and see what happens? He did it. And it was like this one guy, me and him knew, and we just never said anything. He took it and apparently he didn't die, but his subconscious was unfiltered while he was conscious. And he couldn't comprehend what was going on. And essentially, he's sitting there shaking in the, the table next to me. And I'm like, hey, 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 calm down. He's like, Jeffrey's talking to me. I'm like, who's Jeffrey? I'm, I'm like, just curious. I've never heard that name come out of your mouth. He's like, it's a giraffe. And his mouth glows light. And it's telling me to kill myself. I'm like, well, definitely don't listen to Jeffrey then. Jeffrey's an asshole. <laughs> And it was just one of those, he raises his hand and he's shaking like I am right now. He says, I'm going to restroom. Come to find out later, he jumped in front of a semi-truck. He's, he's like, I couldn't handle it. He's like, Jeffrey was too much. As he's like muttering as he's walking out. And it was one of those, I was like focused on that. We were talking about Animal Farm, the book, and then uh-huh. the movie. We were getting ready to watch it. And that's where he's like, oh, it's in between. I need to go to the restroom. And that's where essentially the, the cop um, I guess he the, the semi-truck, when he ran over, Jimmy was saying out loud, Josh was right. I shouldn't have listened. And he was just shaking as he, well, he was dying. And that's where they pulled me aside because they're like, he was saying your name. And I'm like, this is a, it's just I just told you. I'm like, he, he was he, this, this, this guy, he deals drugs. He just did an experiment. And it didn't end well. It seemed like his subconscious was unfiltered. I'm like, I didn't push him. If you, that's what you're insinuating. You know, that's one of the concerns I have with drug use is that what if you bring back some of those things? Like some people will talk about going to a different realm, Mm -hmm. different dimension, and being able to see these entities. What if they follow you back? Okay. We're definitely just going to keep going. (laughs) So. just just so you know, for transparency's sake, I'm actually at a friend's house and I'm supposed to be socializing. Oh, okay. Then the later, we'll have to definitely call and do another one later. Yes. But essentially, um, 
when I got back from Idaho, I, I was me and my buddy, sorry, me and my dad and his buddy, we were going to bad company and his buddy made her own weed, like st- cultivated it and made cookies. Uh-huh. It was a very potent strain. And she even said, this is a very strong one. And we're like, okay, okay. And it's one of those, we get to bad company and she gave us a whole cookie already immediately. That was a big problem because we didn't know the dosage. So right. I'm assuming now I took like 200 milligrams on an empty stomach. A s- last thing I remember is I took off like a rocket. I'm sitting in a white room above the galaxy, the Milky Way, and I'm staring down at it. Oh, Josh. And I just sat there and like I, when I came to one of my stoner buddies at work when I was there and I said, hey, so have you ever had this experience? He's like, that's called near death experience. He's like, I'm surprised you did not split and become like schizophrenic. I'm like, oh, I saw the galaxy. <laughs> I had a near-death experience too, not mm-hmm. from drugs. Okay. I had just had my youngest son. I lost a lot of blood okay. when I had him. And they put, I wasn't in a private room. The person in the bed next to me had had a C-section like three days before. And they allowed her husband to stay in there until like three o'clock in the morning, you know, Mm-hmm. I had had a definite serious uh, delivery with, with Kevin. Like I said, lost a lot of blood, like passing clots, like the size of a kidney. I'm talking oh. like, oh yeah, bad news. And I, I'm exhausted, right? And I've mm-hmm. had no sleep. And then they allow Yahoo in there until the early morning hours. I couldn't sleep. They released me at 10 a.m., but I had to go back that afternoon to get Kevin. So my then husband, his his dad, the boy's dad, um, we went to the hospital, got the baby, came home. So dinner's going in the kitchen. Carl said he would watch the dinner. And I sat down on the edge of the bed and I leaned back on the bed just thinking, I am just like, I don't feel right. Yeah. I, I, I'm just spent and I laid down and I closed my eyes and all of a sudden I was sucked out of my body and I was flying. It was kind of like in star Trek with warp speed going with the stars going, you had that too. That was exactly the same. And I'm getting sucked through the cosmos. And I was like, no, no, I can't go. I I can't go. And it just kept pulling me. And I'm like, no, I'm serious. I have to go back. I am not going to leave my sons. I am going back now. Mm -hmm. And I got pulled back into my body and I opened my eyes and I sat up and I was like, whoa. Yeah. Yeah. And so the interesting thing is the guy, he mentioned it later. Once I told him, he's, uh, he's like, did you by chance see a rolling hills, the essence of the most beautiful colors ever, and a woman talking to you when you're coming back? I'm like, yeah. He's like, I think that's Mother Nature, just so you know. He's like, I've seen her before, too. Whoa. He's like, you, he's like, you might have actually had a conversation with a God, just so you know. And I'm like, interesting. and there's one of those, I said, well, that's interesting because when I got back, because it was such a dopamine drop, I could, like, I told him it's weird. I've noticed it when I, I do stuff like that, I don't anymore, but um, I said, I noticed this one figure following me around. 
it was transparent, so I knew it wasn't real. But he specifically had marred, like almost like uh, ritually sewn closed eyes. He can still see me and blink, but his eyes were ritualistically closed and his lips. And I said, and it was another guy next to him wearing a big trench coat, kind of beaten with time, fairly big top hat next to him. And I said, I've seen the top hat guy before. I'm like, it's like a Jack Ripper kind of guy. He's eerie, but he's no threat. The, the stitched face, though, is new. And he's like, what happened? I said, as I was talking to him, he, he essentially said, uh, we made a deal for you because you're not supposed to die yet. You have much to do. Um, and it's just like, make, take note kind of thing. And, he, and then he left and never came back. And he's like, yeah. You probably have a lot to do in your lifetime, and the, that was not the time for you to die yet. Yeah, I don't know who I was talking to. I mean, I I assume it was like God I was talking to. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. I didn't see a bean is what I'm saying. But I specifically was telling them, I can't go. I cannot go right now. I'm not going to go right now. I'm not going to leave my kids. I mean, I have a newborn right. and a little guy who's not even two yet. Like, mm, no, mm-mm, not leaving them. So I came back. Yeah. And it was just one of those, like, he's super into the terrestrial levels. And I, it looks like we got to let you go too. So, um, but that's where he's saying, he's like, you might've hit some higher levels that even like the Dalai Lama wishes he could get to. Yeah, exactly. Oh, Josh, let's, you've got my email. Yeah. We will definitely be talking more in the future. Okay. hundred percent. Okay. Right. Sounds good. Thank you so much for having me on pleasure be good all right you too <laughs> bye-bye you have stuff to do in life yes i do so be good <laughs> we'll do well congratulations you made it to the end you're a awesome person not many make it here so being the awesome person that you are can you do me one more awesome favor can you rate and review this on whatever podcast uh services you're using um app if you do it on apple uh, and you leave an actual written review, um, I have a thing on my website, I will take your written review and post it for all to see. Congratulations, you're permanently sealed on my site. Otherwise, um, I am trying to do YouTube more and live streaming. Um, I will try to put as many of the YouTube links in the description of the show as I can. So give your boy uh, some extra help over on um, YouTube. Watch my videos. And we, I just mute it and change the channel. <laughs> change the the window or something but yeah um that's it thank you for being awesome and see you next time